Hey, Jay. What's bothering you, Miles? Remember the 90s? Vaguely. Why? Okay, so I've been reading X-Men 92, and of course, the upstarts show up. Oh man, those guys. Uh, So the thing is, I remember them, but I don't think I ever worked out quite what their deal was or what was up with that Games Master guy. Okay, so the upstarts were a group of rich, obnoxious young mutants who hunted other mutants and eventually prominent humans for fun and potential profit. The Games Master assigned points to targets, set rules, and generally strung the contestants along with promises of a really fantastic but never explicitly named prize for the winner. Right, right. It's all starting to come back now. Sebastian Shaw's jerk kid Shinobi was their leader, right? Ah, for a while. Shinobi took the lead early on by killing his dad, but then Fabian Cortez took out Magneto, which put Cortez in the lead by a pretty wide margin. The Von Struckers were there too, right? And Fitzroy. Am I forgetting anyone? Sienna Blaze. Oh, right. Her. Oh, um, who else? Let me see. Oh, Greg and Creed, who was inexplicably going by the name Tribune at the time. Huh. The Von Struckers were only probationary members, though. Because they're the worst? Miles, it's the upstarts. They're all the worst. You know, fair point. So who won? Nobody. Because the X-Men stopped them? Because Husk convinced a games master that it would be more fun to rescue and train young mutants. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 136 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And occasionally some of the random fill-ins from the end of 1989 of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Right, we've been saving these up like skee-ball tickets, and now we are ready to cash them in for some shitty gummy worms and a little tiny toy with a parachute. I got an inflatable Batman once. It was disappointing. I also did once at the place by our old apartment. Is that a universal human experience, buying a shitty inflatable Batman from skee-ball tickets? Were you also baffled and mildly disturbed by the fact that your inflatable Batman was all one piece except for his external panties? Right, he had, like, removable shorts. That was weird. Yeah, I think that was the same time. I think we were just both there for that. Was it just a really terrible sex doll and nobody knew? I mean, it wasn't anatomically correct or anything. Well, I mean, you know, people are into different things. I don't think, and his shorts didn't actually come off. They were attached at the edges. They were just a separate piece. A separate piece. That novel that we read in middle school. Yes. Okay, well, this episode is off to an excellent start. Well, Uh, you know, this episode is off to a start precisely as sensible, focused, and relevant to the surrounding material as the three issues we're about to look at today, which, again, we got by playing skee-ball a lot. Right, so we've mentioned that this is a weird era for X-Men, because while Uncanny X-Men is off doing its own series of almost little vignettes of different X-characters, since there is not a team right now, New Mutants, Excalibur, and X-Factor are all in the middle of giant storylines. Now, we've covered most of those, but we skipped a few issues. And we are coming back full circle to look at those now. Now we've got New Mutants number 81, Excalibur number 20, and finally X-Factor number 47. Yeah, and these are all standalones. Now, some of them try to situate themselves within the storylines they're interrupting, but for the most part, the editors are pretty clear about, hey, we're behind on schedule, have a fill-in. Well, I think that the New Mutants issue, the one that we're looking at first, has an opening caption that's pretty typical of how these are situated. Hey folks, while the New Mutants are off in Asgard dealing with the various Norse deities, we thought we'd take a look back and see how a former team member met up with a certain Greek demigod. How's that for mythological theme? 
Okay, we admit it. We needed something to save us from the dreaded deadline doom. But it's really unfortunate timing because two of the storylines that are being interrupted, especially the Asgardian adventure in New Mutants and the Judgment War in X-Factor, really rely on momentum because they're long stories and a lot happens, and to just sort of interrupt them for something completely unrelated just deflates whatever momentum was going on. Yeah, and the stories are odd fits. I mean, these are all fill-ins, but they're specifically all fill-ins that appear to have been sort of put on deck sometime before the issues in question came out, and enough before that they don't really feel like reasonable asides. They really feel shoehorned in. That said, I mean, while they're certainly not all good, we do have some quality stuff in here, and even in the worst of the issues, there's some interesting stuff to talk about. So what do you say we jump on in? Yeah, let's once again start with New Mutants, which I think is probably the best of the three. I would agree, yeah, and it's especially cool because it's a magma story, and we've mentioned many times before, magma is a character that Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson and basically all the writers who have ever tackled her haven't known quite what to do with. This is, in fact, Claremont returning to the character, or rather writing the issue, I think, back when he was the main writer on New Mutants. And this is one of the better magma stories I've seen. Honestly, I think the best magma stories are very often standalones or very short. I think this may be the best magma story. I've never been as interested in the character as I am right now. As much as I'm fond of that time she had a date with Mephisto to save her friends in the early 2000s run. Oh, man, that was so good. So... This story, this is New Mutants number 81, but it takes place between New Mutants number 44 and 45. It's after the New Mutants are recovered from being killed by the Beyonder, but it's before the Mutant Massacre and before the death of Larry Bodeen. Oh, Larry Bodeen. That issue is so sad. It really, really is. Yeah. Now, we have Claremont coming back to write. We also have a guest penciler here. This is somebody named Lewis Williams, who I couldn't find out much about. He drew a little bit of Daredevil. But he is great for this story. He's really good. He's a really good stylistic fit for the book. He's very much got his own authorial voice here. But it's a very, very smooth transition from, honestly, it harkens more back to the art around where the story was placed. And I think the character models he's working from are very much Bob McLeod's. Yeah, I mean, the characters look more like their later incarnations. So, you know, Magma has longer hair and everybody looks a little older and that sort of thing. But it feels like New Mutants. And what also feels like New Mutants is that this is from an era when it was the main nine characters that, for me, definitely are what that book was about. So let's quickly recap who those are, because we haven't seen that particular team together in quite a while. Yep. So we have the original five. That's Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Mirage, and Karma. We've also got Cypher, Warlock, Magma, and Magic. But what we have first is a framing story. So this is... I guess it's sort of an aside to what Magma is doing at the time before she introduces the flashback. When we last saw her, she'd been at the Massachusetts Academy, and she had been sent back to Nova Roma along with Empath to deal with some stuff at home. Now, on one hand, I think they're still supposed to be there. On the other hand, the framing context of this is that Empath has just gotten back from a Roman Catholic wedding, which kind of implies to me that they're somewhere else. Maybe they're visiting some of his family? It's hard to say. But the opening narration we get, which is from Magma's perspective, really does tell us a bit about what the story is going to be about and about her own mindset, especially with her main companion, friend, and romantic partner being somebody with a very different religious upbringing. And I should note that this frame story is set with the current New Mutants. It takes place concurrent to the Asgard adventure. That's something we're going to see in X-Factor, too, where we have you know the couple pages of framing narrative that are kind of shoehorned around a story that takes place much earlier. So the narration. 450 years ago, the Church of Rome came to this land. It didn't matter that those who lived here already had beliefs, as old if not older. 
The friars brought the word of God, and woe to any who did not listen. For by their side rode the consequences to enforce it. Convert, and you lived, albeit as a slave to the Spaniards and Portuguese. Hold to your own beliefs, and you went the way of the bullet, the sword, and the flame. Why did so many have to die in the name of the God of love? Why must it be a sin to hold another faith? Why one church, one supreme being, to the absolute exclusion of all others? Why are they right in their faith, and I wrong? And that last panel, why are they right in their faith and I wrong, is magma in a super dramatic, windblown, kind of traditional Roman tunic overlooking a modern city. Empath comes back from the wedding and she challenges him on it. She, you know, notes that he doesn't respect her views because he says they're blasphemous. And as she points out, she's met her gods. How does he even know that his is out there? Well, the Judeo-Christian god has, in fact, sort of showed up in Marvel Comics before. He's Jack Kirby, right? Right. The Fantastic Four met God, and it was Jack Kirby. And, you know, I mean, I'm an atheist personally, but if there's a god, then that sounds about right to me. Yeah, that's a really reassuring idea. He's just so nice, and he was, like, very politically progressive and was down with youth culture and was just friendly and open-minded. And he totally tried to get in a fight with a Nazi in the lobby of the, the office. Uh, that's true. He did. And I'm not a violent guy myself, but if you're going to punch somebody, punch a Nazi. Or a pterodactyl. Or a Nazi pterodactyl. Yeah, if you can find one of those, you pretty much have moral impunity. Pugilism impunity. Pugilistic impunity. Impugnity. Maybe not that last one. So anyway. So anyway, Magma goes on to tell him about the time she met one of her gods. Well, first she tells him about the time she watched a movie about one of her gods. Um, We open with the new mutants sacked out in a movie theater, watching what we are to understand is a terrible Hercules movie. And oh man, the writing and the art sell it perfectly. Like, Hercules is grinning like an idiot the whole time as he punches trolls and saves busty damsels. Have at thee, recreant! You and your foul fellows will not harm a hair of this fair damsel's head. So speaks the prince of power, Hercules. And in fact, this is totally canon because Hercules' side job was as an actor in old, like, you know, Greco-Roman action movies at the time. The New Mutants are less impressed. And it just goes from one to the next to the next as they all react to it. I think my favorite is one of the first characters to talk, Sunspot. Way to go, Jercules. Everyone's got an opinion. Nobody likes the movie. And Amara, for her part, is a little bit sad, even though she's laughing along with the rest. Yeah, so she heads on back to the mansion that night and thinks to herself, My father sent me to America to learn of the modern world beyond our ancient hidden land. Would he have done so, I wonder, had he known that one of my lessons would be how to mock my deepest beliefs? So she prays and is met with a slew of responses. There's wind, there's thunder, there's a shooting star, and Hercules shows up in her window. She doesn't recognize him immediately because he is spectacularly backlit. And as we all know, the difference between camp and divinity is good backlighting. And he does look really impressive in this panel. I mean, it's the same costume, it's the same physique, it's the same face that we saw in that cheesy movie the New Mutants were watching. But, I mean, I would kind of fall to my knees and have my jaw hanging open if I saw this dude backlit in this fashion. Well, Amara does initially, but then she flips the lights on and realizes that, oh yeah, it's the guy from the movie, and she assumes immediately that it's the rest of the New Mutants pulling a prank on her. Which, I mean, I guess you could do that with Danny's powers, but what she thinks is that it is, in fact, the actor, and he is there in her window, and this is a prank that the rest of her team has somehow pulled together in, like, the last 20 minutes. I mean, she's relatively new to modern Western culture. Maybe she doesn't understand that actors are hard to come by. No, I'm trying to think what they would have needed to have done, especially considering that she was joking along with the rest of us, and she is just now expressing distress. 
So they would have had to pull this together, not just in the last 20 minutes, but in like the last minute and a half. I mean, the New Mutants, they're uh, very skilled. They're dedicated. I believe they could do it. But regardless, they don't. Magma, though, wakes all of them up saying, all right, guys, this isn't funny. This isn't cool. And they are all baffled. Like, wait, who's this Joker? Why is he here? Hercules is shocked and saddened that she doesn't believe he's a real deal and tries to prove it with feats of strength, which the New Mutants all immediately match because obviously the things he's doing are things that can be done by any number of them. You know, he throws a car, the sunspot throws a car, etc. I think my favorite part, though, is when he leaps like 50 feet into the sky and Warlock is just hovering there as a helicopter. Yeah, and Hercules keeps on being shocked, and he specifically keeps on saying Zounds, and I'm going to nitpick on this because it's really strange. Because the thing is, like, Zounds, if you don't know its context, it's just an archaic sounding curse, but it's really specifically a Christian curse. Oh, right, it means God's wounds, Yeah, yeah, it's it? a contraction of God's wounds, and it specifically refers to the crucifixion. So it's a little bit bizarre to to see Hercules using it as his oath of choice. I guess that is even weirder than the fact that all the Asgardians talk like they're in Shakespearean plays, isn't it? I mean, that's sort of a mannered stylistic choice, but this is a word with a very specific meaning, even if that meaning has been somewhat diluted by its idiomatic meaning. Now, Hercules is getting more and more frustrated, and so he eventually says, screw this, I'm going to show you Olympus itself, and he raises his mace to the heavens, and nothing happens. Because, meanwhile, in Olympus, the gods have also apparently been seeing the really bad Hercules movie, and they're so embarrassed by it that they've decided to basically exile him for a while. To sort of teach him a lesson for making people take the gods less seriously. Which is kind of hypocritical, considering that this is a judgment coming from a dude who has basically been fucking his way through the zoophiles of Earth for the last several millennia. Yeah, he turned into a swan to have sex with a lady. And he totally I, did. I'm pretty sure it wasn't at all consensual either. Yeah, I mean, a bad movie is... How many, like, horrifying Zeus sex tapes are probably floating around out there by now? Oh, God, that would be the worst film festival ever. Oh, you said it, and now it exists. Oh, goddammit, quantum fetish theory. But anyway, Hercules is kind of humbled by all this, and he vows to Amara that he's going to prove himself, he's going to prove that he is really Hercules, that her faith is truly real and valid, and he goes off to do so, and she's like, okay, well, I'm worried you're going to, like, knock a building down on yourself or something, so I guess I'll come with you. They're trying to catch a taxi when from a nearby building they hear gunshots. And Hercules is overjoyed. A robbery! And after they successfully stop this robbery... Hercules is basking in the attention of women and free drinks and adulation from the people who work at the bar he saved. And Magma is just sort of dour. Fuck you, Jercules. Well, what she actually says is, you said you'd find a way to prove your true identity in nature. I want to thank you for doing precisely that. And she walks out. Man, after that first scene, I feel like every time he doesn't get called Jercules is a wasted opportunity. <laughs> is that going to be your insult of choice now, just like in life? It sure is. Jercules. Oh, man, it hurts more every time you say it. Sorry. <laughs> and so she heads out figuring, screw this. I guess I'm going to go back home. I guess, you know, this was just a sick joke when I was in my time of need. And there's a nearby explosion. Something has caught fire in a, in a building and people are trapped. The first time I read this, I was dead certain that that was going to be Hercules having manufactured some kind of disaster so he could prove himself. And I was pleasantly surprised to learn that, no, it was just a normal building fire. And it blows her the hell over as well because she's close to it. And I was actually really pleased to note that while the overcoat she's wearing does get shredded by the explosion, her New Mutants costume doesn't. So way to not strip half naked a teenage girl for a change, comics. Wow, that's really depressing that we're calling that out as exceptional. Take a respectful, well-portioned drink as you moderate your alcohol intake. And cry. 
So she, of course, goes right into action because, hey, people are in need. I'm a hero. This is what I got to do. And turns into her magma form, heads up there. I got to say, this is kind of bringing a new meaning to the phrase fight fire with fire. Turning into a magma form to go deal with a burning building seems like a deeply ill-conceived idea. No, no, no. It totally works. I mean, she makes stairs out of molten rock that quickly harden. She creates this sort of rock sphere that, again, cools quickly to encase some of the trapped people in and tosses it down. That does raise a question, though, and one I've not really considered, which is how much heat she just gives off when she's in that form. Because, I mean, she hangs out like that sometimes, so I guess not very much. But on the other hand, she's supposed to be literally made of magma. Yeah, I got the impression she was certainly hot, but was able to control it or at least contain it. Kind of like Iceman doesn't, you know, get people's tongues stuck to him. That's because people don't randomly lick him. They might. They probably don't. Well, because they know what would happen, except it wouldn't, because it would be fine. But what I like here is that as Magma does toss down that protective rock shield that the victims are trapped in, Hercules is right there to catch it. Yeah, there's a teenager who's found a baby and is trapped and calling for help but won't abandon the kid. And Amara tries to save them and is knocked out, and Hercules dashes in and manages to get the baby out. One of the things I really like about him, and one of the things I think that I consistently like about New Mutants, especially around the time that this story is set, is the lack of zero-sum equations. I mean, we talked about that actually specifically in the Larry Bodine issue a lot about how you have kids who are terrible and jerks and also kind of sympathetic and also don't mean to do the terrible thing that they end up doing, but have still done it and it still has consequences. And here we've got Hercules, who is absolutely an asshole and a blowhard, but he's also genuinely a hero. And we see a little more of that because Amara and Hercules stay with this teenager all night. The doctor says that the kid's gonna die. He inhaled flame as he was just calling for help and calling for help to try to save the baby he was protecting. And Amara is just helplessly infuriated. It isn't fair. We have such power. I to make mountains, you to level them. There must be something we can do. I, lass, try to make the inevitable a little easier. Perhaps your flesh is beyond hearing my words, Jaime Suarez. But it is the special province of immortals to speak to the spirit. As yours was noble, let my tales be the same, in hope they bring you comfort on your final journey. And Hercules tells tales of the Greek gods, tales of the Greek heroes to this boy until he finally dies near dawn. And Hercules cries. He feels that he's failed because this child died, and it's up to Magma to point out that the kid died, yeah, but the baby would have died as well if it weren't for Hercules. So maybe not so much of a Hercules after all. And this is where Amara just bows to Hercules and says that now she believes, she knows that he really is a hero, that he can come off as a total blowhard, but that nobility is within him. They head off to clean up and get some breakfast and to talk to Jaime's parents, and we see Zeus' face overlaid over Jaime's body, saying that he's welcome in the fields of Elysium. That's weird. He's going to be awfully lonely there because that's not actually where the dead go in Greek mythology. Oh, I don't... They, they go to Hades? All of them? Even the heroic dead? Oh, Even I guess cool you, would, you wouldn't want to welcome a kid to that place. That place sucks. Like, high five. Maybe someone will bring you some blood to drink so you can talk. Oh, man. I don't want to die at all, but I especially don't want to die in Greek mythology. Don't you remember that from the Odyssey when he brings all his war buddies blood to drink? Yeah, yeah, I do. And they all basically make dire prophecies at him. No, oh, that's And really, no one is happy. <laughs> that's unfortunate. But here, Amara at least is happy because her faith has been, you know, kind of validated. And as we cut back to the present day, as we cut back to her talking to Empath... Empath concedes that, okay, you know, yeah, she, she's met her gods, and that's awesome, 
But he asks, since he believes in his God with no direct evidence, then whose faith is stronger? Yeah, arguably what Amara experiences is not faith at all in this context, or maybe it's faith in their their rectitude and their value, but certainly not in their existence because she just knows that. But still, she's found some manner of comfort here. If Manuel has never doubted, I envy him. But I have, and in that hour of need I was answered. Even if I'm never so blessed again, that once was enough. Manuel has his faith, and I have mine. And thus ends New Mutants 81. It feels a little unfair to make the jump we're about to jump, because, man, Excalibur 20 is so bad. So bad. It's pretty rough, yeah. Now, this one doesn't even cop to the whole lateness. It just says... Stan Lee presents an untold story of Excalibur from a time just before the cross-time caper. Sit back and relax. This one's gonna be a blast. Oh, Stan Lee, you say that about literally everything, and sometimes it's not true, and this time it's not really true. Yeah, this is lies all lies. So this one's written by Michael Higgins and drawn by Ron Lim, uh, both certainly competent creators, but it just doesn't really come together for me. I haven't read any of Higgins's other work, and it's possible that it's better than this, but honestly, this issue does not speak to his competence as a writer. Yeah, well, there is that. Lim is fine. Lim does a perfectly good job. I love his Captain Britain. Yeah, yeah, me too. So this is set before the cross-time caper. There's little evidence that maybe it's set even before Inferno, but Widget's around in a way that Widget wouldn't be around until after the cross-time caper. Kind of like that one Marvel Comics Presents story we covered a while back, so who knows? I had completely forgotten this story. I've read Oliver Lee Excalibur multiple times, and this one just never sticks with me, and I think in retrospect that I must have repressed it. It's also just completely incidental. Nothing that happens here matters. Like, there will be a callback to it eventually in the very distant future, but I still won't care. Well, let's uh, just go through it kind of quickly and cover the highlights and the lowlights then. So we start out with this sort of awful couple hanging out at Arthur's Seat in Edinburgh. They're named Sonny and Sherilyn? Sure, why not? So my main share point of reference is that one X-Files episode, The Postmodern Prometheus. That is the best possible share point of reference. Yeah, the Sherilyn is different from that share. Do you think they got together because of the names? I mean, maybe they're just really embarrassed when they got together. Or maybe they changed their names in order to match. I'm not sure which would be worse. I'm not sure either. But regardless, they don't have much time to have confusing names and be awful at each other because there's suddenly an earthquake and they're transformed into standing stones, as happens. Okay. And those stones start glowing and we see a face that will be familiar if we read this one Thor story in the 70s, that being the Demon Druid. Now, you say Demon Druid, I mean, what, what do you expect from that name, Jay? I mean, what I definitely expect is a muscly gentleman with blue skin and long flowing white hair wearing a little leotard. Well, in that case, you were exactly right in your prediction because that's what we get. Yeah, God, so, I'm good at this. So Demon Druid is actually one of the Cree Eternals. His name is Ardcon. Which sort of sounds like some kind of trade show, like where, you know, I don't know, exotic animal husbandry experts get together or something. I, I'm trying to think of what ARD would be short for, and all I can think of is ARDVARC. ARD, Apple Remote Desktop. It's software that I use every day in my day job. Do you convene around it? I mean, sort of? So anyway, ARDCon, the Demon Druid. Why is he named the Demon Druid? Is this just a thing? So in the original Thor story and here, he had this connection to Stonehenge, which is like a druidy place, you know, where the fairies live and they do live well or whatever it was in Spinal Tap. I wish that he had stayed in school and then he could be Dr. the Demon Druid. So his deal perpetually, by the way, he is the saddest supervillain because he just shows up on Earth and he doesn't want to be there. He just wants to go home. 
And so all of the quote-unquote supervillainy he does is just trying to figure out a way to get the hell back to wherever he came from. Right, and it always involves, you know, a henge of some sort, hence the demon druid thing. Sure. Well, regardless, he has just showed up on Earth. In the meantime, this is an Excalibur comic, so they're doing stuff as well. Specifically, Megan is being super sad about how her boyfriend, Captain Britain, is a total jerk to her. In her defense, yes. Yes, he is. In his defense, he's usually not nearly as much of a jerk to her as he is in this villain issue. Yeah, all the characters are kind of their worst selves in here. And Captain Britain is, in fact, off cheating on Megan with Courtney Ross. Although I don't know if he and Megan are officially a couple at this point because it takes place in weird, nebulous, time-distorted. We didn't really care about continuity. We just needed a fill in Excalibur. Well, regardless, it's pretty clear that she's very unhappy about this and he should know better, even if he doesn't know that Courtney Ross is really currently the interdimensional warlord Satire 9. Comics, everybody. Comics, everybody. And Megan is expressing her insecurity by looking like a pink scroll. Brian isn't paying attention to her, so she feels like she must be ugly and horrible. And ergo, as an empathic metamorph, she looks ugly and horrible, or at least like a pink scroll, which is, I will admit, kind of disturbing because it goes from like green alien to chewed bubblegum real fast based on coloring choices. It's pretty weird looking. But despite Nightcrawler's attempts to comfort her, she flies off very upset and, in fact, does fly past Captain Britain sucking face with Courtney Ross, which that can't help. But not before totally dissing Kurt. Like, she seriously tells him, what do you know about what a man would find attractive when you're nothing but a monster yourself? Everybody is really out of character in this issue, and Captain Britain and Megan probably get the worst of that. Yeah, oh man. So, speaking of Captain Britain, I mentioned that I like Lim's Captain Britain, and man, I really, really do. Like, he plays up the chin and the smirk and the hair just a tiny bit, so he's still very recognizable, still very much himself, but also looks super douchey, and he also looks like he should be on the cover of a romance novel called something like, I don't know, her noble rogue or something really generic. The Vicar's Infidelities. No, he doesn't look very Vickery. Maybe oh. he could be one of the Vicar's Infidelities. Maybe, that's true. He's an open-minded douchebag. Maybe Courtney's the Vicar. Uh, what he looks like to me is a cad. I mean, I don't know exactly what the word cad means, no, but I feel like he is you're one. You're absolutely right. He is the visual platonic ideal of cad as drawn by Ron Lim. It's, <laughs> yes. it, and it's lovely, and I absolutely adore it. I just realized that I forgot to mention that Captain Britain is being a total Jercules here. Oh, he, oh man, he's being he a total is. Jercules. He's being a total Jercules. So Megan flies off and she sees Demon Druid at Stonehenge. The new Stonehenge, the one he made out of, you know, tourists. Just the two of them, though. Yeah, but then he summoned a bunch of weird energy standing stones, so it's kind of questionable why he would need those tourists in the first place. It's very ambiguous. A lot about this issue is very ambiguous. It's his thing. And Megan concludes... A frail woman might not be able to deal with someone so virile looking. What the fuck, Megan? But I am not a woman. I am a monster. I'm and not doing any usual Megan voices for this. I feel like everyone should just talk as melodramatically as possible in this issue. Well, especially when after saying I am not a woman, I am a monster, she turns into literally Godzilla. So we are lucky enough to have our very own Godzilla expert in the studio. Our producer, Kyle Yount, hosts Kaiju Cast. And we've asked him to join us to weigh in on Megan's performance as the famous lizard. So, Kyle, how do you think that Megan lives up to, you know, Godzilla standards? Well, I, uh, I really like how she immediately just sets off with a blast of what looks like radioactive fire against the demon druid. But I, I can't help but notice that she immediately is imprisoned in one of his energy blocks, which is a total bummer for a Godzilla fan. But she's turned back to her own form, which might be part of why she's so easily imprisoned. Would Godzilla let himself be taken out like a chump like that? Hell no. 
And there you have it, folks. Kyle, thank you for weighing in on us. So with Megan imprisoned in rock, what's next? In the meantime, Rachel and Kitty are bar hopping. They're having a night out on the town. But I love the bar they stop by. Like, this isn't a good issue, but there are so many cool little parts. Oh, holy shit. This bar is called The Witchery by the Castle. I don't know if it's a real bar. I really hope it is, because if it is, then somewhere in the UK, there is a super smoky, super sleazy looking bar with an enormous glowing pentacle on the ceiling populated by D&D pirates. So it's a satanic pirate tavern. Yes, and I want to drink there. Oh man, that's almost as good as that one space bar with the cool neon taps from last time. Or the worst disco. Oh, there's so many great places to get drunk and possibly also murdered. Yeah. So they decide they don't want to hang out with a bunch of satanic D&D pirates. So Why can... would you not want to hang out with satanic D&D pirates? I reject this entire issue. Everyone's so out of character, exactly. Right. But they do see a big radioactive fiery something or other flash, so they go to investigate, and what they find is, in fact, the demon druid having just imprisoned not-Godzilla, Megan. And they attack immediately. Rachel shifts them into their uniforms, and Kitty attacks the demon druid by phasing her hand through his heart. Why would that do anything to him? Does she think he is a robot? Is he a robot? Maybe if he had, like, a pacemaker, that would mess with it, but that seems pretty harsh, you know? Yeah, that would be super uncool. Well, regardless, it's what she does, because it's what will be necessary for the plot later, and all of a sudden, there's a big, like, uh, weird sound effect of swoop, and uh, the demon druid's gone, and the standing stones are gone, and Rachel and Kitty and Megan are just sort of there hanging out. Well, it's nice that whatever she did turned Megan back. So can we conclude based on this, the demon druid is in fact a demon robot druid, or at least has a pacemaker, a demon cyborg druid, perhaps? What is this, Samuel Hate from White Wolf? Is he a transhumanist druid? This is a very White Wolf issue in general. It kind of is. So everybody goes back home. And Kitty starts just working on this weird machine, and when people ask her what she's doing, she says, I don't know, and nobody seems too concerned about this. I mean, she's a teenager. You know, all those teenagers with their baggy pants and their rap music and their strange, like, you know, cybernetic projects with no explanation and obsessive motivation to complete them. I mean, look, I don't know how you spent your teen years. I personally spent them having slumber parties and making uh, mutual murder pacts with my friends just in case any of us ever went um, irredeemably evil. Oh, you and Stefan, huh? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But (laughs) uh, for those of you who missed it, Miles and I are referring back to the Nightcrawler's Inferno annual where Nightcrawler and his stepbrother make just such a pact during a moment of teenage bonding. As one does. Why not? Anyway, Kitty doesn't know what the hell she's working on. Just that it was something she was compelled to build and it's not working and there's something missing and she wants Captain Britain to take a look, but he's too busy being a big old Jercules. A big old Jercules and also very caddish. Now, one thing I do enjoy here is that Rachel's concerned about Kitty, understandably, but thinks to herself, It's times like this that it's difficult to resist the urge to read her thoughts, but I can't. I've got to respect her privacy. Nice. That's such a rare thing in the Marvel Universe. Also a really rare thing in Rachel Summers, who kind of stampedes through everyone else's mind like a bull in a china shop under the best of times. Often she does. You remember that one time she tried to get the X-Men to kill themselves? Yeah, man, that was a thing. Sure was. Man, the Beyonder ruins everything. That Jercules. So Kitty does, in fact, finish her project with the help of Captain Britain, who takes over while she's sleeping because, okay. And the next day, they find out where the demon druid has gone because he's just sort of randomly on TV. Yeah, I love how Excalibur basically figures out their missions just from TV. It's like, we were just watching the news and this thing's going on, so we decided to pop over. Do they get calls on a red phone? No, fuck no. They just have cable. A cable television, not Nathan, Christopher, Charles, Dayspring, Ascani, Sun, whatever the fuck, Summers, who's currently running around with X Factor. 
do you think the Justice League, when they have monitor duty in the watchtower out in space, they're just watching TV? Yes. I'm just imagining Martian Manhunter just spending all of his time, like, binging, I don't know, the Great British Bake Off or something. I am pleased to report that there have been no oven incidents in the last 12 hours. Beijing burned down, Martian Manhunter! But the souffle is perfect. (laughs) So they head out to what turns out to be Darkmoor Nuclear Research Facility, coincidentally the place that Captain Britain used to work. So I love this plan. So what Demon Druid's doing is he's like, all right, a normal henge, even a stone henge, was not enough to get me home last time. So I'm going to make a radiation henge. A magical radiation henge because he makes a bunch of like psychically created cooling towers in addition to the existing cooling towers. And it turns out this nuclear reactor is also on top of a bunch of magical ley lines. So this is like belt and suspenders to the max here. I was actually seriously considering calling Susan to get a quote for this, our nuclear reactor expert. But I figure that this is a little bit out of her bailiwick. And the issue honestly probably isn't worth it, but they go to confront him, but not before Captain Britain decides to fly off on his own, because as we know, he's total Jercules in this issue. So the rest of Excalibur shows up. Kitty has Widget connected to a weird machine to try to fix things, but no, Captain Britain is getting in a fist fight on top of a nuclear reactor, which is probably a terrible plan. I mean, if you're a normal person, it's not that terrible a plan. Like, it's not really a worse place than anywhere else to get in a fist fight. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't Wolverine fight Deadpool on top of a cooling tower at the end of X-Men Origins Wolverine? We don't talk about that. That's probably for the best. Good point. Yeah, so Captain Britain is trying to beat the hell out of the Demon Druid, and finally Phoenix is able to stop him before he can blow up the reactor by punching things into it. There's no way I'm going to let a child stop me, humiliate me. I am a child of the stars. Oh, dude, this dialogue. Oh, dude. I know that conversation makes no sense either. (laughs) Do you remember that part of the uh, Avengers video game where you ask Ultron where the laser is and he just says, ask the police? Or that part where a character just yells at you, why should it go as well? (laughs) Why should it go as well, Jay? A child of the stars. Wolvie, they're stealing a baby. I'll just throw that one in for kicks. Welcome to die. Welcome to die. As this happens, Kitty shows up with her big widget-connected machine and uses Rachel's telepathy to psychically communicate with the demon druid, saying to him, I know what it's like to be separated from those you love. I know how you must feel. Because, you know, she lost all the X-Men at the end of all the mutants when they died, and she still doesn't know that they're alive. Excalibur is able to talk Captain Britain down. She uses Widget to create a portal, and the demon druid heads on home, ending the issue, but not before a final line. After all, that's what friends are for, with a misplaced apostrophe in friends. It's just kind of the perfect ending beat to this issue. Now, I gotta say, Claremont, you know, we're still in the middle of Claremont's run of Excalibur before he leaves and way before Alan Davis picks up writing duties. But issues like this, unfortunately, there are going to be quite a few of them between Claremont and Davis's run. So we'll see how all that goes when we get there. Now, though, we're going to jump to X-Factor to look at X-Factor number 47, Guardian. And once again, the editors are a little sheepish. Yep, a special Archangel solo story brought to you by those folks who were late with their deadlines. I kind of miss when editors talk directly to the reader. Oh, I do too. I cannot imagine a book, especially not a big two book these days, doing something like this. And it's really delightful and it's really nice. And honestly, I think it goes a long way toward making those lapses a lot more forgivable. Now, this issue is both written and drawn by a guy named Kieran Dwyer, who I couldn't find out all that much about. And I gotta say, it's pretty decent. It's weird, but it's decent. Yeah, so most of the story takes place after Inferno, but before Judgment War. And 
It's framed as a flashback while Angela is imprisoned during Judgment War, but I want to start with the cover because the cover is fucking hilarious. It's Angel kneeling and screaming against just a solid fuchsia field with the caption, From the depths of memory come the depths of pain. And the depths of fuchsia. I mean, it's a really harsh color. I'd be recoiling from it as well. Maybe he associates it closely with Magneto. That could be, or it's basically the color of the weird little lines on his suit, so maybe they remind him of the time that Apocalypse tortured him and turned him into a death instrument. So as I mentioned, this is this is framed, so Angel is imprisoned by the Chosen, and he is miserable and sad, and he tells himself, No, must try not to despair. Be strong. Remember the children. The children brought hope. Hope is power. Remember. And so what he remembers is that time that he accidentally got stuck in a cloak and dagger story, apparently? Yeah, I'm really curious as to how these children are bringing hope in this or to why he's thinking of this group of mostly young adults as children or in general what the hell's going on. But I guess they felt like they really needed to contextualize this in the current arc rather than just have it be a fill-in. I kind of like the New Mutants just apologized and then didn't even try to have a framing story that tied into the Asgardian adventure. Well, they did have a framing story. They said it with what Magma's up to right now. Even so. We open, or rather the flashback opens, on the mean streets of New York. There are prostitutes, people with funny jackets, porno theaters, people calling this innocent-looking-in-over-his-head-kid sense for some reason. Remember the porno theaters. The porno theaters brought hope. Remember. I mean, that would actually make more sense than this flashback. A lot of things would. Now, this kid walks up to a blind homeless man who is panhandling outside and touches his face. And the guy is healed. He can suddenly see again. And the kid, the teenager who healed him, is immediately overwhelmed by tons of passersby who effectively bury him, demanding his help. Yeah, and Dwyer's art here sells it really well. I mean, there are just all these hands reaching down toward the kid. Like, it almost seems like a zombie movie. You really get the feeling of overwhelm. Dubiously, luckily for this child, he is rescued or rescued in scare quotes by a group of street toughs who... Miles refers to nonstop as the Jets, despite the fact that they neither sing nor dance, and I have not seen a single one of them snapping in the entire story. Well, they have kind of the same look. They have this sort of greaser thing going on, at least in this scene. The would-be Jets manage to basically push away and kick away all of the supplicants who are trying to get healed. They They beat the hell out of them. It's like Final Fight style. God, it's exactly like Final Fight. See, that's why I don't like Final Fight, because you're basically... A couple of jerks who run around beating up the homeless. I mean, you kind of are. You are. Like, literally, there are people who are sleeping on benches and they get up and confront you and you kick them until they vaporize. Sometimes you hit them with a pipe. I really fucking hate Final. Like, I find Final Fight actively disturbing. Oh, but Mike Hagar, mayor of America, a man of burning vigor. You can't argue with Mike Hagar. I mean, you can. It just won't end well. I wouldn't recommend it. He'll suplex you. Anyway, the evil Jets get the kid's name, which is Mike, and they take him back to their HQ, talking all the while in really amazing kids these days lingo. Dig that voodoo, child. Dist. Dist. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what people said in 1989 all the time. I mean, that's definitely how I remember talking in second grade. So (laughs) the evil Jets bring Mike back to their HQ into a kindly looking old man named Philip, who touches Mike and reads his memories. And man, Mike's got some kind of fucked up backstory. He does, although I really like the way it's presented. Like, we see Philip's telepathy manifesting as these chalkboard drawings of Mike as a kid and his parents. It's very Psychonauts. 
It kind of is. That's a really good point. Yeah. And what Mike specifically remembers is the day that he resurrected the family dog and his parents were really upset. And it's implied that then his father took the resurrected dog outside and killed it again? Damn it. I mean, that's, I guess it's messed up no matter how you do it. This is like a really dark version of Frankenweenie, and Frankenweenie was already kind of dark. You're probably right, because what we find out later is that Mike's dad was not okay with his powers. He insisted that he hide them, and when Mike used them to save a car crash victim, he savagely beat Mike, who then ran away. And Philip is, like, being super comforting about this. He puts his hands on Mike's shoulders and tells him it's going to be okay, and he can stay here, and he'll be safe, and he can stay with the leader of the Jets, who inexplicably now is sort of like a nerdy, evil Zonker Harris? He's got the haircut, definitely. He does, yeah. He also has a Beam Me Up Scotty t-shirt. His name is Greg, by the way. And Greg is actually horrible. But what I love about Greg is he's played up like he's going to be a really significant figure in the story, and he is absolutely not. He's just kind of there. Now, a person who is going to be a more significant figure is a character named Beth. She's a teenage girl who gets brought in all beaten up by some of the people who live in these headquarters. And we learn that she was, in fact, beaten up by the Jets who caught her trying to escape. And Philip, now that Mike is out of the way, lets his true colors shine free. Please? Oh, Beth, dear, are you begging? We've had this trouble before, haven't we, dear? Begging is a crutch for the weak, and you should never reveal your weakness to me. And then he brings Mike in, makes up some ridiculous story about how she was mugged on the street, and asks him to heal her, and he does, and her memory is wiped by Philip. She just knows she was hurt, she got healed, Philip helped her, he's a great guy. Philip is a dick. And Philip mentions offhand that, you know, Beth needs to get some sleep because she's got an early shoot tomorrow. We'll get back to this a little bit later. Now, while all of this is going on, Angel is doing what Angel does best, which is to say brooding. He looks awesome in this. Now, he's already Archangel in this flashback. And the way that the artist draws him, like, I don't think I've ever seen him look as badass in a comic not drawn by Walter Simonson. What he's doing while looking this badass is perching on a rooftop like a fucking gargoyle while reviewing the minor indignities of his childhood. I mean, you do you, Warren Worthington III. You do you. And uh, he quickly sees a drug deal that's going on. And since he's apparently Batman in this cloak and dagger story, he descends like a vengeful techno Batman demon thing, like legitimately terrifying. The way he's drawn by Dwyer, he's all shadow. Only the uh, pink of the lines on his costume are visible and the rest is just this silhouette. And it's intimidating. I'm not going to lie. He disrupts a scene that he thinks is a gang of hoodlums selling drugs to a group of teenagers but finds, or at least one of the hoodlums informs him, that in fact the opposite was going down. The kids were the ones selling the drugs. That doesn't stop him from having some great darkety-dark narration. The cycle of pain continues, unbroken. Like the serpent feeding upon itself, the disease eats its young. I'm trying to do the growly Batman voice, like the one from the Dark Knight Returns section of Legends of the Dark Knight on, on the animated series. This is an operating table. And I'm a surgeon, and I just, I can't get my voice that gravelly. Also, man, it's murder on you. It's like when I do karaoke of Electric Six or something, like, I, I lose my voice after. Man, it would be worth it. So you're gonna have to take that voice as read. Now, I really enjoy what comes after this, because Archangel's troubled by the fact that he misread the situation so much, and he's really troubled by all of the shades of gray, all the ambiguity in his life ever since he became death, ever since he became Apocalypse's horseman. Meanwhile, Philip is preaching to the children. One of them uh, looks a lot like Mohawk Storm, and she's got a tiny skeleton hanging from her belt, and I really like her. And it's clear that Philip is doing this sort of deranged religious leader thing, talking about the cleansing fire they represent and how they can stand above the world that they'll burn. 
I liked him a lot better when he was just nice to Mike before he was abusive toward a lady and then also an apocalyptic preacher of doom. So for like three panels? Uh, Yes, I liked him better for those three panels. Afterwards, in their room, evil zonker uh, Greg goads Mike into admitting that he has a crush on Beth, then promptly shows him a video of her that, from Mike's reaction, I think we're supposed to assume is porn. That's never explicitly stated, though. So I'd like to think that it's just a really bad movie, that like her big dark secret is that she's just in really shitty student art films or possibly that she is secretly Uwe Ball and Philip is forcing her to make terrible movies to fund his cult. Is that why House of the Dead happened? Suddenly I look a little, a little more charitably upon it. No, if anything, it's even worse. Mike is horrified and demands that Greg turn the film off. And just then, Beth is dragged back in. She tried to run away again. And Mike and Greg run out. And Philip, in explaining the situation to Mike, says, well, she thinks she's better than the rest of us. To which Mike responds that no, she's worse. And dude, I mean, don't slut shame her or don't, you know, forced into making pornographic movies shame her. Either way, Mike needs a crash course from movie Deadpool on respecting sex workers. You know, we give Deadpool a lot of shit, but that movie was good, and that aspect of that movie was actually quite admirable. Yeah, that aspect of the movie is super, super good. There's actually a really terrific article about exactly that that I'll link to in the, as mentioned to this episode. And so Philip encourages Mike to use his powers not to heal her after she's gotten beaten when trying to escape, but to hurt her more. Mike is basically Elixir before Elixir. Dick move. Total dick move. This can't go much further because suddenly there's a scree that divides all the panels on the page, and Archangel shows up, firing flechettes at everybody. The kids immediately attack him. They are all mutants, and they've all got really shitty code names. Voodoo, Buzzsaw, Slimeball, Mohawk. Come on, what are these guys, the Brood? Yeah, those Brood code names were just as bad. What about Philip? Do you think Philip is his code name? Yes, I think that his code name is Philip. I think his real name is like Frank or something. Archangel does successfully intimidate Buzzsaw and everybody away because, like we said, in this story, he's really, really scary. But Philip dives into Archangel's mind, and what he finds there is an amazing splash page of this biblical tableau, the archangel like Jesus and the X-Men and X-Factor on one side and, yeah, Apocalypse and his horsemen and Hodge on the other. And look, archangel, I know you got a lot going on, but when a supervillain stops his rant to call you melodramatic, it's probably a sign that you need to take a serious look at your life. Oh, man, I love Archangel. I love how melodramatic he is. Nobody understands him except his diary. I mean, Philip's not wrong here, though. He's totally not wrong. He's just an asshole. And just as Philip is about to murder Archangel with one of his own flechettes while he's paralyzed by this stained glass vision, Beth uses her own powers, which are apparently also telepathy, to mind zap the bejesus out of Philip. Oh yeah, Mike heals her in the middle of the fight, so she's okay now too. And yeah, she is secretly a telepath, so go Beth. Although, going back, man, you know what would be really horrifying? A telepathic Uwe Ball? Right? Oh jeez. Can you imagine? I don't want to. Now I can't stop. Oh, God, he was already in our heads all along. Oh, well, regardless, the cops take Philip away and, you know, all the kids are free to go. They're no longer being manipulated by this guy who apparently was holding them largely there with his telepathy. Mike and Beth decide that they're going to stay together and try to help people. They politely turn down Angel's offer to take them to ship, which is a great thing and probably means that they'll be able to have happy lives rather than inevitable, like, death and misery among the ex-kids. Greg is invited along, but he, alas... We'll have none of this. Forget it, you losers. I don't follow anyone. Sayonara, suckers. Man, what a jerkules. 
And so that's that story. And, you know, it, it's weird for an X-Factor story. Like I said, it really does feel like a cloak and dagger story or maybe a bizarre chick tract or something. But it's not bad. And we do get an interesting perspective on Archangel we don't often see, that sort of concern and discomfort with ambiguity, that wish for a black and white world that he'll never get to experience again. We also get an utterly irrelevant Longfellow quotation as an epigraph. So read this story and consider that this specifically is how Archangel comforts himself when imprisoned. He's a complex man with complex experiences. Speaking of complex people with complex experiences, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, The last major events, Secret Wars and now Civil War II, have been plagued with delays. Is there an industry reason that big events with a set schedule and issue count can't be completed ahead of time to ensure release? I know you can't do that for ongoings, but when you know the story and that it's going to be so many issues, couldn't it just all be done in advance? There is a reason, my friend, and that reason is people. Um, seriously, as the issues we covered in their context should tell you, delays have always been an issue, and they're probably always going to be when people are doing small-scale creative work on a fairly tight schedule. Companies, and editors especially, do their best to schedule out as much ahead of time as possible, but when you're coordinating a big event company-wise, the number of things that can throw a wrench in the gears is really high. By the same token, those creative schedules, you know, they've got as much wiggle room as they can, but that's usually still not a lot. And so things like a catastrophic illness, a family death, getting really stuck on a script, finding out that someone used a character in a different way and you have to now go and rework your entire plot, someone getting a gig somewhere else and quitting, etc. Like anything can throw a wrench in those gears. And honestly, I'm impressed that they're not consistently significantly more delayed. It's really kind of an inevitable aspect of that kind of scheduling. Another thing that contributes pretty significantly to it, I think, and I tend to trace a lot of issues in comics publishing back to Diamond's stranglehold on distribution and promotion. So Diamond is the one big comics distributor. They basically have a monopoly and solicitation deadlines have been getting further and further and further out from publication dates to the point that... When you solicit an issue relative to when it goes to the printer, like you do not know by the solicitation deadline whether the issue is going to be in on time. Unless you're working like three, four, five years out, in which case you are outlaying a huge amount of money and making a huge investment with a very, very delayed return, which isn't really a viable model in the way comics work, you're really gambling no matter what. By the same token, and I got to say, finally, you know, you think of this as a modern problem, but honestly, I suspect you may just be a modern reader because big events have been plagued by delays from very early on. Again, when you've got a machine with that many moving parts, where the moving parts are all essentially individuals doing a lot of work on a tight schedule, there's only so far out that you can plan and account for every variable. And having everything done before you even solicit just is not really a financially or narratively feasible option a lot of the time. Tim emailed us to ask, In the past 10 years, we've seen Logan as a headmaster, Cyclops as a gritty rebel, and Colossus on a no-holds-barred paramilitary unit, to name just a few. Do you think there are any X-Men who are truly stuck in a single-team role in interpretation? And are there characters you'd like to see shaken up with a new place within the various teams? That's a really good question. And yeah, I'll agree. I mean, all the last few years have really been defined by characters being used in new directions that gave the entire line new directions. So for me, I think I would like to see Rachel Summers slash Gray as like a political activist or something along those lines, you know, channeling her passion and knowledge of how badly the future could go into swaying public opinion to make the world a better place to prevent that dark future. 
I mean, ever since she lost her full connection to the Phoenix Force a long time ago, honestly, ever since she fell into the time stream in mid to late Excalibur, I think she's kind of been a stagnant character. No one's really known what to do with her. For me, that direction would help a lot. Although I suspect she might need Kitty Pride to kind of help her stay focused because they always would have worked very well together. Like that time Kitty was president in X-Men The End. I would also like to see Adam X the Extreme as the CEO of a successful marketing firm. I mean, the dude clearly has some intense drive, like we've seen that. And I can't imagine that he didn't catch the eye of corporate America at some point in their endless quest to target millennials with their products. So I think it follows. I think it would be fun. I think he would have to still have that weird little soul patch. Iceman is my first and foremost answer to this. I'm not sure what I'd like to see him doing, but I would like to see him get to sort of grow up and explore some. I'm hoping that that's the direction he's moving. He's getting a solo series, so I'm pretty excited and optimistic about that. Bishop. I would love to see Bishop as a teacher. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially after the weird, I don't know if you would call it character assassination exactly that he's been going through over the last many years. The, the sharp left he has taken. I was going to say Beast, but Beast is actually a character who has really successfully reinvented himself a lot over the years in terms of team role. And I'm absolutely 100% with you on Rachel Summers. As far as characters, to digress a little, who have been reinvented in ways that totally worked, the two examples I would cite uh, from a long time ago are The Vanisher when he was leading the Fallen Angels, when he was sort of a cowardly Fagin-type figure to a bunch of runaway teenagers, but especially Sunspot's current role. Oh, hell yes. Leading Avengers idea mechanics, having gone from being a hot-headed frontliner to sort of a smugly manipulative businessman. It works so, so well, and I'm really excited to see where that goes in the upcoming U.S. Avengers. Absolutely. And with that, we are a listener-supported podcast entirely, and one of the rewards that comes with support at certain levels is thanks on air from a variety of fictional forces and or characters. So let's see what the angry Claremontian narrator has to say. Oh, Craig Warsaw. Once you flew high, secure in your moral rectitude in service to Leah's unshaking vision. Now, twisted into a shadow of your former self, you find yourself questioning everything you once believed. Are you truly a hero, or are you merely some asshole with wings? Some jerkules. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, now Google Play once again, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan arts, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's time for Adventures in Appropriation. As we officially usher in the 90s with Ninja Psylocke.